Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency for the new Spectator USA website. I'm here with Kurt Mills, uh, who's a foreign affairs reporter at the National Interest and our favourite Americano guest, Jacob Halbrun, who is editor of the National Interest. And Kurt, I'm going to start talking to you because on our last podcast, Jacob and I were talking about Trump's Iran tweet. And we talked a lot about what might have motivated him to tweet so aggressively at Iran um, at that particular stage, which was two days ago. Um, but I'd like to ask you, Kurt, because you wrote a very interesting piece on National Interest website yesterday. As what do the Iran hawks behind Trump think that they're doing? What, what, what world are they existing in now? So it's very interesting. Um, I think that Trump is distinct from the Iran hawks and everyone around him. Uh, he's his own operator. And what, as I said in the piece, which you can find on the website, it's called, you know, the Iran hawks think that they're in 1989, not 2003. And what I refer to that is Trump's motivations here are threefold. One, I think it's just manifestly clear that he wants to move the news cycle away from Russia and Helsinki, even if he thinks the policy behind uh, meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin was sound. He, he at this point, knows it's a political loser. Uh, in fact, a, a source from, familiar with the situation told me that, you know, on the ride back from Helsinki, he saw all the daytime Fox coverage of uh, the summit, and, you know, he was very critical. I think, th- I think you have to understand there's a, there's a uh, distinction between the daytime Fox coverage and the nighttime Fox coverage. The, the daytime Fox uh, people are, are much more like uh, career Republicans who would just as happily, uh, you know, take a, another Republican president versus the, the three-pack, Tucker, uh, Carlson, Laura Ingram, and uh, Sean Hannity are far more ideological and far more true believers in Trump. The second reason why Trump would do uh, the Iran uh, tweet uh, is that he is under any Republican president would be under considerable donor uh, and congressional uh, pressure to to make this move. And, uh, you know, they've been out of the news since the JCPOA nullification in May. And he got him back and he got him back in the news. And then third, uh, uh, Trump does, you know, buy in this sort of, you know, 1980s Sun Tzu kind of negotiating style where where he, he does a good cop, bad cop. So he does an all caps near apocalyptic tweet against Rouhani. And, you know, maybe that gives him better future negotiating leverage uh, in, in a future negotiation. But um, you don't think that it was a product of Helsinki? You don't think that Putin and Trump, because we know that Netanyahu's been talking mm-hmm. to Putin a lot. In fact, Netanyahu went to Russia the day after Trump ripped up the Iran deal. You don't think that there was some sort of agreement between Trump and Putin that he can have the green light to to be aggressive towards mm. Iran now because they've come to an agreement on Syria? Uh, it's possible, uh, certainly possible. Only, only the translators in the room and, and, and Putin and anyone to, you know that's familiar with those conversations uh, uh, could say that firmly. I think it is clear that the Russians... Um, and the Iranians are convenient allies, and if the if uh, uh, the Russians got uh, X, they would throw Iran under the bus. The question, though, is uh, did they get anything? Because you know, uh, right now Moscow has been the recipient of 
very favorable rhetoric from the President of the United States, but behind the scene, I can't tell you how many calls on the White House calls that I, I've been on where, you know, Steve Mnuchin is unleashing new sanctions against Russia. So mm -hmm. from a policy perspective, Russia is worse off today than it was the day that Trump was, was elected. They haven't gotten any concessions on Crimea. They haven't had any negotiations in Syria, and the sanctions have only been ratcheted up. So and until... Trump's keen to say that, isn't he? He's keen to make that point. He mentions it. Mentions it. I mean, it is this sort of, like, you know, schizoid thing where, where like, Trump says, why can't we get along with Russia? Meanwhile, his administration does something completely different, but, you know, this is a bit of a schizoid administration. Freddie, it occurs to me what could really rile up Trump is the fact that last night a, someone took a pickaxe and demolished his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in Los Angeles. This could be the one thing that really sets off Trump, don't you think? All John Bolt would need to tell him is that that was... Um, Iranian Secret Service. That that was that was, that was the Iranians. Now did, I the Iranians speculated did. in the spe in the Spectator this morning that it could be a false flag operation. Yes. Well, I think I think that that's surely the best way to his vanity is to attack his star status. Exactly. Do we, do, we, yeah. do we know that he knows? I'm sure someone's informed him. Uh, why would why, what what, what profit would there be in informing? Him? It could be a deranged member of the press corps who finally couldn't take it anymore, see, or a member of the well, thing. Jim Acosta was pictured in, in Hollywood Boulevard last night with a pickaxe. There you go. Yeah, there you go. But Jacob, do you think that for in Trump's head, uh, Russia can be to Iran as China has been to North Korea? I think no. I don't think that's quite right. I think, I think his hope was to detach rather than having Russia exercise leverage on Iran, it was more to detach Russia from Iran so that he can act there with impunity. It's true that he wanted Russia to, as, as does Israel. Israel has been pushing Russia to keep the Iranians away from the border near yeah. the Golan Heights. But I think the long-term goal of the administration was to convince Russia that it's not in its interest to have close relations with Iran. But they have to give something to Russia. And the question is if there's going to be any political appetite to do that whatsoever. And if the Russians aren't going to get anything in real policy terms, uh, they're not going to just so quickly abandon the Iranians. That being said, but, I mean, they don't, it's not a perfect analogy because they don't own the Iranians like Beijing owns Pyongyang. What do you think will happen next on Iran? Are we going to see this fire and fury style? Yeah reaching an agreement. I, I think we, uh, so I talk about it in the piece, and I, it, I don't mean to keep plugging the piece, but I think it's one of the better ones I've written recently, and it's worth, it's a worthwhile explainer for a lot of the air, for a lot of the uh, contours that aren't uh, commonly discussed in the media or, or, or readily apparent. And what I would say is that um, there is a sense in the White House, in the, a lot of the right-wing think tanks a lot of the Republican sort of staff level people, um, whether or not this is an accurate perception or not, uh, there's a there's a sense that uh, the the Iranian regime is unstable, and that all it takes uh, is some push, and that a military um, coup or military um, expedition uh, by the United States or Israel wouldn't uh, necessarily be necessary. Now, I I think you know my own view. Uh, the, the protests in Iran are, are, are quite serious, uh, definitely the most serious um, uh, that they've been in, in at least uh, nine years, since 2009. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the Iranians are, are not a uh, strategic concern for no reason. They have a serious military. 
uh, and they have they command regional militias from everywhere from Morocco to Pakistan. And the question is, if they, the regime really wants to survive, um, could uh, uh, could uh, this apparatus turn on its own people to survive? I mean, we, we saw Bashar Assad in Syria uh, do just that. He would turn his own, turn the army on its own, his, on his own people in order to preserve the regime or the government or to, to keep it safe from terrorism, as he would term it. Um, you know, I, know, and, I know that, and, um, I mean, it's been said a lot that the protests in Iran are more serious than they've been. I'm sure that's true. Mm-hmm. But when, I mean, there is an element of uh, wishful thinking, I think, isn't there, among... It's an absolute roll of the dice. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a reporter. I'm not, a, I'm not here to catch that much of a policy uh, judgment on it. But I mean, like, you know, it, 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 if, if you're for for skeptics, for strainers, you know, it's like <laughs> it's like the old game. It's, you got you got National Review pushing this. You got John Bolton pushing this. You got you know Rudy Giuliani speaking to the MEK, you know, the, the controversial group. You know, mm-hmm. this seems like the old game getting back together that did a rock. That being said, it is interesting. I had I had the opportunity to inter, uh, interview these guys from the National Council for the Resistance of Iran, which is associated, some would say, synonymous synonymous with the MEK. Yes. And you know what they'll say is like, look, this is completely distinct. You know, we were against the invasion of Iraq. And like you'll say, what? You know, whatever. Why are you hanging out with John Bolton? And they'll say, look, Iran wanted the United States to invade Iraq. And they would say, look, the, the, the guy they wanted to put in charge of Iraq originally, Ahmed Shalbi, mm-hmm. uh, the would-be George Washington of Iraq, um, you know, he had his offices in Tehran. You know, and, 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 you know, so they, they view it distinctly. But and isn't it, this a slight problem with America, and particularly Washington, that mm-hmm. people can project a reality on Iran that is very, very distant from the reality that the people in Iran well, feel? I mean, it, I know, I know so we had a variety called Christopher Beleg who writes mm-hmm. about Iran. He has an Iranian wife who's lived in Iran, right. has worked a lot on this stuff, and he says he's never met a single Iranian who supports or even knows MEK. You know, so it's a sort of oh, fantasy yeah, yeah. of of Washington that these people are causing a well a revolution. I mean, that's anecdotal, but I mean, I mean that I mean they are like a sort of like di- I mean that the term is that they're they're diaspora Persians, and mm. um, they I mean they, a lot of these people haven't been in the country in, in over thirty years or more. I mean, we're coming up in forty years of the revolution, um, so I mean you have to have your own assessment there. I, I, I would say that in general, the uh, the dialogue around Iran is uh, shows the folly. Uh, or a lot, at least the drawbacks of non-normalized relations. Um, you know, uh, you know, Shavad, uh, Javad Zarif comes to New York and he speaks to people at the UN, et cetera. But in general, um, you know, American administrations don't have that much one-on-one contract with Iran. And I think especially if you have a sort of, yeah, kind of non-ideological um, personality-based president like Donald Trump, um, where his personal relationship with the principal um, can so affect the tone that his administration sets with the country. Like, I mean, can you imagine if he had, if he, if he met with Rouhani or Zarif, who speaks pretty good English, and you know, he they hit it off. I mean, it could be night and day the policy. So, I mean, from from a from a perspective of, of you know, let's not get the United States involved in regime change. Um, you know that that it, it, that that is a drawback. But I mean, the people who advocate for this, and I've talked to a lot of them, is like, you know, look, I mean, Iran is the number one regional problem for the United States. This is a country whose government line is deaf to America, et cetera. And it's, it's been problematic since 1979. And, you know, this is a Republican administration. Here's the opportunity to potentially finish them off. I think the big question is, what, what if these protests don't uh, produce uh, a sacking of the regime? 
or what if it what if it what if it lapses into civil war? Because I mean, you could see a situation where the United States could actually compel civil war. I mean, I mean, the, the Iranian currency is trade is is trading at an all time low. Um, you know, the U.S. can pretty effectively, if it wants to, cut off um, Iranian access to international finance. Um, and, you know, if the Europeans, who are resentful of the Americans for leaving the GC- JCPOA, at the end of the day, are going to choose trading with the United States over trading for Iran. The question is, is, is this a valuable place to place political capital? Mm. And I think that's an open question. Um, but certain segments of the Republican Party, the rank-and-file Republicans in, in the House and the Senate, and a lot of the donors... Uh, they want to see a hard line in Iran. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. After Trump ripped up the Iran deal, there was obviously a lot of objections in Europe, and the British government was very upset because Boris Johnson had come over and tried to beg on Fox mm-hmm. uh, for Trump not to tear up the Iran deal. But it, instantly, the language from the White House became, well, you either can trade with Iran or you can trade with right. America, which was a sort of ratcheting up. That is the rhetoric. The yeah. question, the real question is if that's the policy. So, I mean, one of the... You know, the, because you know the a lot of the ambassadorships are so um, are not really staffed or political appointees. Um, you know, the real interesting character is this guy Rick Grinnell, who's the U.S. ambassador to Germany, and he was mm-hmm. previously a U.N. spokesman for Bush. And you know, he has given he in an interview for Breitbart where he talked about how like he sees his role as <laughs> supporting the populist parties in Europe, which is like you know, the ambassador is not supposed to be so nakedly political with the yes. domestic politics of the continent. And he's and, come under a huge amount of Christmas yeah, but he didn't apologize for yeah. it. I mean, and, and it's unclear that like that got him in any trouble in the administration, and, and he may see that that that's his view. And the, you know, he says that they're going to start doing these uh, secondary sanctions, i.e., sanctioning Europe for working with Iran. That is the real question because it's it's one thing if a Republican president goes up and gets out of the democratically negotiated, you know, Democratic Party uh, negotiated Iran deal, and that's it. Because the fact the fact is, the U.S. and Iran haven't been trading for basically 40 years, and the U.S.-Iranian relationship is just not that significant commercially. That's not true of the Iranian-German relationship or even the Iranian-English relationship. And so uh, if they actually want to squeeze Europe, that's the game changer. Okay, I think we'll leave it there. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for talking to me and uh, enjoy your dinner tonight. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and you can also subscribe to the magazine through our special podcast offer, which is on www.spectators.co.uk forward slash pod offer. And we'll even throw in a spectator moleskin notebook for people who take up that offer. Mm-hmm.